The scripture reading for today is John 1, verses 6 through 13. Please open your Bibles to John 1, 6 to 13. If using a pew Bible, the passage can be found in page 71 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This this Palm Sunday. Everyone knows what Palm Sunday is about. The uh, coming of the king into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, being revealed to everyone that he is God's chosen king. Um, Today, on this Palm Sunday, we're not going to be looking at that passage. We're going to be looking at the coming of the king into this world as the king of light, the one who came to combat and to overcome and to deliver us from our darkness. Would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Lord, truly we do adore Thee. We do adore Thee. Father, Son, and Spirit, we have been given hearts that worship You. Lord, and that long for nothing more than to see you lifted high and to see your name magnified in our own lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and in the lives of everyone in this world. Lord, we want to see the name of the triune God lifted high. We want to see the name of Christ proclaimed in every corner of this world so that there is not not a single crevice wherein the darkness dwells, where the light of Jesus' name has not been proclaimed. Father, we know that that's your will. That's the commission that you've given to us, Lord, to go into all the world, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, the one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do your will in the name of your Son. Lord, we long to see that will accomplished. We long to see your name hallowed in this world as it is hallowed in heaven, to see your will done, to see your kingdom come, or to see your name exalted. And as we look around us, we're reminded of all the ways that the fullness of your glory and the hallowedness of your name has not yet come. Not the way that we long for it to come. Lord, we, by grace, we have tasted your holiness and it has changed us forever. Lord, we long to see your holy name brought with power, with with, uh, redeeming, reconciling power upon the sinners of this world. And God, we just pray that you would give us grace to move forward in seeking to accomplish that will, at least as far as you've commanded us, or to go and to preach the holy name of Jesus by which your spirit saves sinners. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you use it in our lives and your faithfulness to us, Lord, to shepherd us and to mold us into the image of your son and to bring us safely into your eternal kingdom. I pray that this morning, as we look into your word together, you would even be accomplishing those ends, or that you would be bringing us further into the glory of your Son, 
so that we would see him more clearly and worship you in his name more fully. God, fill us with a sense of of your otherness, your uniqueness, Lord, that drives us out of this world and drives us into this more zealous and holy pursuit of seeking to know you, Lord, and to walk according to your ways. We pray that you would accomplish those ends even this morning as we're looking into your word. Please guard my mouth. Keep it from saying anything unhelpful. Guard the ears of your people. May they not hear anything that is in error. And Lord, may you work among us in such a way that we know your presence is here. And that we leave this room encouraged and empowered to live the rest of this week for your name. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Ooh, <clears throat> almost swallowed that water wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, last week we, we ended um, at the Lord's table briefly touching on the third point from last week's sermon, which was God's purpose for the ministry of John. John 1 verse 7 tells us that John came as a witness in order to bear witness to the light so that all might believe through him. In other words, God's goal for John in his ministry was for everyone to come to saving faith in his son. That God's purpose in sending John was to awaken sinners in some way, or at least to prepare them to see and to receive the light that was about to come into the world. And uh, that being God's goal, we see that his purpose in John was that all sinners indiscriminately would be urged and prepared through John's ministry to behold the salvation of God when that salvation arrived, at least arrived before their eyes. But sending a preacher named John was not the only part of God's plan in seeking to address and overcome our darkness. Verse 8 reiterates that John himself was not the light, He was not the end. He was not the ultimate goal. He was not everything that God was sending to this world. He was simply a witness who came to bear witness to the light of another. John was one part of God's answer to our darkness, but he was only the preparatory part. The heart of God's plan to rescue us from our ruined state is found in verse 9. where we find that he purposed to overcome our darkness by purposing that the light would come into the world. That is God's answer to our darkness, the coming of the light himself into the world, and we're going to be looking at that today. So there are three headings that we're going to look at from uh, basically running from verses 9 through 12. And uh, those three headings are uh, one, the true light was coming into the world. Number two, the true light came to bless the world. Number three, the true light was rejected by the world. So the true light was coming, the true light came to bless the world, and the true light was rejected by the world. So let's look at that first one, the light was coming into the world. The reason that John the Baptist came into this world bearing witness to the light was because, as verse 9 says, the light was coming into the world. After addressing the ministry of John here in the prologue of the Gospel of John, our focus is returned to pay attention to this person identified as the light. Now we remember in verse 4 we were introduced to the light where the life of Men, that that life that is in the word is described as the light of men. The light of the word, or excuse me, the life that is in the word becomes our light because as we receive life from his hand, 
the very fact that we are sharing in his life points us to the reality that there is a life giver. The very fact that we have life points us to the reality that there is someone who has given us life. We did not give life to ourselves. There is one who is outside of us who has given us that life. And it is only as we live our life in the light of the reality of the one who gave it to us that we are actually living our lives in the light of God. Otherwise, we are living and walking in darkness. What verse 5 says, a darkness that even though the light is shining in upon it, we in our fallen nature can no longer perceive or understand it. So verse 9 tells us that God's answer to the problem that we face as his creatures involves sending that light that was spoken of in verses 4 and 5 into the world in a new and in a richer capacity. Not only shining into the world, shining upon us the light of the truth, but personally entering into the world himself, coming into the world as our light. Now, it's not as though the light that came into the world has ever been absent from the world. You see that in verse 10, where it says that the light that's coming into the world was already in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That verse tells us clearly that the light that was coming had always been present and had always been involved in the world in some way and in some capacity. Verses 4 and 5, the light has always been shining in upon the darkness. He's always been involved with this world. He is not the God of the deist, right, who just created the world and wound it up like a top and just let it spin on its own while he kind of drifted into the background. That's not the God of creation. That's not the God of the Bible. He is a God who is very intimately and intricately involved in his creation. Nor is he the God of the agnostic, who may acknowledge the existence of some God out there, but yet declares that that God's presence is so far removed and he is so absent from this world that we can no longer discern who he is. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of creation. He is a God who is very active and very present in this world. He was in the world. Now the word, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has been actively at work in this world in every molecule that is in existence from the moment he created it. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us one of those ways where he's been involved in this world. Jesus Christ has always been and is even now upholding the universe by the word of his power. See, when God created the world, it's not as if he created the world in such a way that it could exist independently of him. He created this world in such a way that every millisecond it was entirely dependent upon his preserving power to uphold it and to keep it. So in other words, there's no part of God's creation where God is not actively speaking that element of creation into existence, at least speaking into it in such a way that it preserves what he has already made. Right? Grant and I were talking about Jonathan Edwards' perspective on this, where God is basically recreating everything, second, millisecond by millisecond, over and over again in a great succession of events. That's too deep for, we're not going to get into that right now. But the point that Jonathan Edwards was getting at was the reality that there is nothing in this world that can exist on its own. It is always and completely entirely dependent upon God to uphold it. The light was in the world. He was in the world even by the means of upholding the universe by the word of his power. So there's never been a moment when the word, the true light of God, was absent from this world. But notice in verse 9 how verse 9 describes the light's involvement with mankind in particular. It tells us there in verse 9 that the light has so fully permeated the body of mankind, the body of humanity, the light has so fully permeated humanity with its light that it can rightly and truly be said that the true light gives light to everyone. That's the ESV reading of this passage, and I think that the ESV is right 
in its translation there. You may have a translation that reads like the NASB, which says that there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now that translation makes it sound as though the light is only enlightening every man after it comes into the world. But that's not the point that's being made here in the Greek. The point that's being made here in the Greek is that the light that has been shining upon all mankind from the very beginning, the one that has been the only means and source of light and enlightenment that humanity has ever experienced, that one is coming into the world. So I believe the ESV is right whenever it translates this as the light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now this is simply elaborating on what was said in verses 4 and 5. When verse 9 says that the true light gives light to everyone, it is describing the individual illumination that God gives to every human being that has ever existed. I don't hear any amens on that. I should hear some. When it says that the light gives light to everyone, it is describing the light's personal involvement with every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Specifically, that's talking about the light of the knowledge of God revealed in creation. And that is talking about the recognition and the, of that knowledge of God in the conscience. So the light of God revealed in creation and the illumination that comes upon all mankind within their conscience in light of the knowledge of God that's given in creation. According to Romans 1.20, this is how the Word has been shining the light upon every man. He's been making the truth about God known to us through creation. And Romans 1.19 even says that 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 knowledge is so full, that awakening, that awareness, I should say, of the reality of God and what can be known about Him has been made known to us in such a way that it's a kind of illumination that is made within humanity. That God has made this known not just to us, but within us. Right? That's that illuminating effect that the Word, the light of God has been accomplishing in all of humanity from the very beginning. He's been making sure that God's witness is being pressed in upon every single human being, that every human being would be held accountable. Now that shows a a deep level of intimacy and involvement of the triune God in the life of every single one of his creatures. Let me be clear, it's not enough light to save humanity out of the darkness that they are in. But it is enough light to condemn them in their darkness to leave them without excuse because God has clearly been showing them that he is the true God, he is the living God, he is the God who is there. And if you want to read a great book that's unpacking some of the practical ways that we see that, even in our culture today, read Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There. It's a wonderful treatment of this this very thing. But it says, Acts 17, 27 says, God... In, in his providing of us all of the boundaries of our existence and giving us life and breath and all things, in those ways, God, it can rightly be said that God is not far from each one of us, no matter who we are. God has never left this world without a witness to his reality, making himself known to what has, through what has been made, leaving us without excuse. And it has always been the word, the light, that has been giving that light to everyone. Now, it's important to understand something here. Before humanity fell into sin and before we became consumed by darkness, that revelation of the light through creation was absolutely sufficient in order to guide us to all the right and true knowledge of God. The revelation of God through creation, it's been said that God's revelation through creation was actually originally our Bible before we fell into sin. That the revelation of God made known through creation is enough to give us right understanding about who God is and a right understanding about how we are to live before him and worship him in our unfallen state. But now that we are fallen, now that we've been corrupted by sin in our minds and our affections have been distorted and sin has destroyed our ability to discern and submit to the truth, that level of revelation of God through creation is no longer sufficient to guide us to a true knowledge of him, at least a saving knowledge of him. 
So it was enough, but now it's no longer enough. The world is in a state in which it can no longer recognize the light that has been shining, even with that light continuing to shine in our darkness. We still do not comprehend it. Now that's setting up for this. If you're still with me, shake your head around, wake up, let me clear my throat for a second. What is the Father's answer to that problem? Well, he chose not only to send forth a preacher, but he chose to send forth his light. Not only to shine upon the darkness, but to shine out from the midst of the darkness. So the Father's answer to our darkness is to send forth the sun, the light, the eternal word, to penetrate our darkness, to come down to be with us in our darkness, and to cause the light of the glory of his name to outshine it, to break out from the midst of it, right? So it's no longer this picture of the light seeking to penetrate the darkness from the outside. God's answer to our darkness is to send his son forth onto the, or into the inside of that darkness to cause the light to shine out from the inside. To break into the darkness and to expose it for what it is and to rescue those sinners who had been lost in it. Since the world would not come into the word's light... The Word chose to bring His light with a new level of fullness into the world. The world would not come to the light of heaven, so the Father sent the light of heaven into the darkness of the world. Now, what was He coming to accomplish? What was He coming to do in this world? In verse 12, it tells us that the light, second point, the light came into the world in order to bless the world. Now, that is truly amazing when you think about the hostility that exists between light and darkness. Light and darkness never dwell together. The moment that you bring, just picture a dark room, right? The moment that you strike a match and light a candle, what happens to the darkness in that room? It's dispelled, right? It's that darkness dissipates and the light begins to take over. In Genesis chapter 1, what does God do whenever he speaks into the darkness? He speaks light into that darkness. And what happens as a result? The light and the darkness were separated. There's never this intermingling of light and darkness in the scriptures, in other words. Now what's interesting, just picturing the reality, it's like oil and water. They're never going to mix together. They're never going to find cohesion together and be in unity together. Light and darkness cannot coexist, at least not in a partnership. And so it's amazing that when the light came into this world, the light did not come into this world with a sword of justice, ready to mete out vengeance upon the enemies of God. The light didn't come into this world in order to bring down the full execution of the divine wrath of holy God upon these these undeserving sinners who were lost in the darkness. No, the light came forth into our darkness in order to bring a blessing to those who were in darkness. You see that in verse 12. Rather than coming in judgment, it says in verse 12 that the light came in order to give us the blessing of sonship. The light stepped down into our darkness in order to make sinners the children of God. Now this really sets apart the glory of what the word came into this world to accomplish. This was his task. Not just to make blind, darkness-loving sinners see the truth. Not just to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into our darkness, but rather to take rebellious and vile and estranged and ignorant and God-hating sinners like us and make us sons and daughters of God. That is what the word, that is what the light came into this world to do. Not simply to expose what was wrong about us, but to take us and to make us those that are now the possession of God. It shows the depth of what God was willing and, more importantly, what God was planning to do 
through the great act of sending his light into this world of darkness. He was not just after servants for his sake. He was not just after friends. He was not even after pardoned and justified sinners. His plan was to forge such an intimate relationship with humanity that the only way to adequately describe it is to call his rescued sinners the sons and daughters of God. This has actually been what we find in Scripture. This has actually been God's plan for humanity from the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve in his image, Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 tells us that the relationship that resulted was similar to that which exists between a father and a son. Pay attention to the language that's used here in these verses. Verse 1, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Okay? He created them male and female, and he named them man. So both male and female were made in the likeness of God. Now notice the language of verse 3. And when Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son in his own likeness and in according to his own image. Now, you see the parallel there, right? Adam has a son, and his son is in his own likeness. His son is in his own image, right? That's the exact same kind of relationship that Adam himself had with God. When God made him, God made Adam in his likeness, right? That's that picture of sonship. That from the very beginning, God created human beings to be his sons and his daughters. This is why in Luke 3.38, it describes Adam as the son of God, right? Because of his relationship with God from the very beginning. Now, we see that manifest also in God's relationship with Israel, right? After the fall of Adam and Eve, guess what happens? Sons and daughters, they are cast out of the garden and they're now alienated from him. But God begins to move with the nation of Israel to recreate what was happening in the garden. We were looking at that this morning with Grant, right? That God's purpose in, in, in moving with Israel was to restore what had been lost in the Garden of Eden. So when God comes forth, he brings forth a people for his own possession out of their slavery in Egypt. He transports them through the wilderness and brings them into the promised land, which is a type of the Garden of Eden. And he brings them there so that God and man as redeemed mankind can now dwell together in his holy land. They can dwell together in each other's presence and they can be together forever. That's at least what is being pictured by this uh, redemption of Israel. And you find this sonship language existing between God and Israel from the very opening of the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Yahweh sends Moses to go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn, therefore let my son go. Right, sonship. Now here the picture is, is of a whole nation being counted as God's son, God's firstborn. The whole nation, in other words, enjoying the status of sonship. Isaiah 63, verse 8, it says that this was part of God's purpose in redeeming them from Egypt. God says, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. I'm just trying to draw out the fact that the language of sonship is not new to the New Testament. The language of sonship is what God has been after with humanity from the very beginning. This design to make sons and daughters for his holy name. So we find in the Old Testament this picture of sonship. However, these pictures of sonship all failed. Adam betrayed God. And what happened? He was cast out. Israel dealt treacherously with God. And both of them found, Adam and and the nation of Israel, they both found themselves rejected. Cast out of the land that housed the special presence of God and that picture dwelling together as God's children with him. See, the picture of sonship was there in the Old Testament. The foreshadowing of God's intentions and his desires was there and it was manifest, but the substance of sonship could not be found in the pictures. So the, the Old Testament was picturing sonship with God, but it could never fulfill sonship with God. 
the fullness, the fulfillment of that picture had to wait until the eternal son himself came, right? Not until the word, the eternal son of God would come and bring the blessing of sonship to us would God's plan to have many sinners rescued and redeemed to be his sons and daughters find its fulfillment. And that is what the true light, our Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world to bring us the blessing of being children of God, bringing that picture to its fulfillment, bringing the shadow to its substance, fulfilling the plan and purpose of God that had been in existence from the beginning. Now, verse 12, it says that Jesus came not only to give the blessing of sonship. Notice this, too. This is really, this is really key. He not only came to bring sonship or, or to make us children of God, but he came to give us the right to become children of God. In other words, Jesus didn't come to gather to himself a bunch of illegitimate children or to gather unto the Father illegitimate children. He didn't come to gather to himself those who might dwell in God's house and use God's stuff, but who in reality did not belong to him. He didn't come to give us the kind of sonship that was still open to the charge of being treacherous to our Father. Right? He came to give us a kind of sonship that actually deals with our prodigal nature. Right? Our waywardness, when we go into that foreign land and we spend all of our Father's inheritance upon the desires and the lust of the flesh, Jesus didn't come to call children who were still living like that. He came to give us the right and the authority to become children of God. That means he came to redeem us out of that mess and bring us into a state with God where there would no longer be a charge of non-sonship. Right. He came to give sinners the right and the authority to become God's children in spite of what we are in ourselves. In Jesus, we have the authority to lay our hands upon this blessing of being God's children without fear of being disqualified from holding such a title based on who we are. Man, this sermon, this sermon is, is a difficult one for me because it was about three times as long as what I'm bringing into the pulpit. I really want to launch out into this, but... We're going to come back to these themes as we walk through the gospel. So be patient with me, bear with me, but just recognize if you are a child of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not only God's will for you to be counted as his child, but it is actually how he sees you in Christ. So many of us in this room struggle to look upon God as a, as a loving father. One who is ready to receive us. One who will not cast us aside when we come to him. One who won't ignore us when we plead to him. We struggle to see the kind of love that God has for us as it is described as being a heavenly father towards us. But in Jesus Christ, we've been, we've been brought into this state where, where all that doubt and that fear can be removed. Because what makes us doubt the kind of fatherly love of God towards us? Is it not our own failures? Is it not our own inadequacies that make us think we cannot trust God to love us as a heavenly father? Jesus came to deal with that, didn't he? He came to deal with our enmity and to bring us into a state of peace with God the Father. A state where we can rightly be called children of God. And God now looks upon us like that. You don't need, you don't need to give in to the pressure and the lies of the devil that cause you to doubt that reality if you're truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. God looks upon you as a, as a son, as a daughter, through his beloved son. Now, how does Jesus, how does the light bestow that blessing and that authority upon us? How does he give us this right to become children of God? I want you to notice, verse 12 tells us he doesn't give us that right 
by prescribing some set of rules or giving some regimen to us to follow in order to attain it. He doesn't list out this, this, this long, he doesn't give us this long list of responsibilities that if we can somehow check all the marks and, and do this and do that, that someday if we work hard enough, we can become worthy to be considered a son or a daughter of God. That's not how Jesus came to confer upon us the blessing of sonship. The light did not bring the blessing of sonship with God for those who were able to measure up to that status in and of themselves. Verse 12 tells us that he came to give that status of sonship to all those who would receive him. To those who simply believe in his name. To them, verse 12 says, to them he gave the right to become God's children. Not to those who could earn it. He didn't come to give sonship to those who could somehow be mighty enough or strong enough or faithful enough to earn that right to be God's children. No, he came to give the gift of sonship to those who would simply receive him. Notice receiving him is further defined, further described as believing in his name. These are parallel terms. What does it mean to receive him? Well, it means to believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? Well, it means to receive him. To believe in his name. A name encompasses everything about a person, the person to whom that name belongs. When someone uses my name, for example, when they're talking, when you're talking to someone else about me, hopefully it's good things. Hopefully you're sharing good things with someone else. But whenever you use my name, that name is encapsulating all that I am in your mind. You say Seth to someone and you mean me, everything that I am is being represented by the use of that name. Well, to believe in Jesus' name is to believe in everything that he is, to believe in all that he is, all he has revealed himself to be. The true light of God who has come into the world to help us know who God is, to reconcile us to him, the word of God who has been with God from the beginning, from all eternity, who has come to us. To believe in his name is to believe in all of those things revealed about him and to accept them. Now let me unpack that a little further. What does it mean to believe in Jesus' name and to receive him? Well, first of all, what it means to receive him and to believe in his name, it means that we need to recognize that he offers himself to us to be received. And he does so freely. Try to think of an illustration here. Gordon and Levita are going to be getting married soon. Where are you? Where's Levita? Hey, Levita, raise your hand. Let everybody know you're here. Yeah. All right. Gordon and Levita are going to be married soon. In that ceremony, they will both be presenting themselves to the other person, and they will be saying to one another, I will have you as you present yourself to me. I consent to take you to myself and to give myself to you in return. Right. Jesus, the true light of God who came into the world, offers himself to us asking, will you have me? Will you have me as I offer myself to you? So the call to receive him means first that Jesus offers himself to us. You can't receive something that's not being offered, is my point. Secondly, what does it mean to receive him and to believe upon him? Well, to receive him means that we, on our part, consent to have him as he offers himself to us. Jesus comes to us declaring, I am the light of the world, and the only means you can, have, uh, you can walk in the light of the knowledge of God is by coming to me. And we receive him by saying, yes, Lord, I recognize that to be true, and I will have you as my only light. I will have you as my only lamp by which I can come to understand who the Father is. Jesus comes to us saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
And we receive him by responding to him and saying with a full heart of faith, Lord, I will look at you and I will look at no other in order to understand who the Father is. Jesus comes to us saying, I am your God-appointed king. And we say with a full heart of faith, yes, Lord. When we receive him, we say, yes, Lord. You are God's appointed king. I see that and I receive you as my king. He says, I'm the bread of life that the Father has given to you so that you may eat of me and receive eternal life. And we receive him by receiving him spiritually as our bread and by seeking eternal life with God only through the spiritual bread that the Father has offered. We come to Jesus with all of our spiritual longings. We come to Jesus with all of our spiritual hungerings and our thirstings after things that are eternal. And we bite and we chew and we savor what the Father has provided to satisfy that hunger in His Son. That's what it means to receive Him. It means we come to Him and we actually ingest all that the Father has given to us in Him. He says, I am the only way that you can have forgiveness of your sins before God. And we receive him by acknowledging, yes, Lord, you by your cross, by your death, by your burial, by your resurrection. And now in the light of your ascension into glory, I recognize that you are the only way that I can have forgiveness of my sins before God. And I will have you as my only hope and my only expectation of being forgiven. That is what it means to receive him. That's what it means to believe in his name. It means that we consent to accept him in all of his fullness as he presents himself to us. Not as we want him to be, but as he is in the manner in which he's presented himself to us. And it means that when we come to him seeking to receive him as he is in himself, we come holding nothing else in our hands to add to who he is or to what he has done. When you come to Jesus and you receive Jesus, when you believe upon his name, what you have to do is let go of anything else you might be believing in. You have to come with an empty hand of faith to Jesus if you are going to receive him. If you come holding anything else up to Jesus with your right hand and you seek to take hold of him with your left hand, that will be nothing more than an offense in the presence of God. Because you're saying that what the Son has done is not enough. i got to add my own goodness to what Jesus has done in order to make me feel that I can be secure in the presence of God. What a wretched statement to make. What a trampling over of the blood of the Son of God. To believe that you have to add something to it. No, we must come to Jesus with an empty hand if we are going to receive him and if we're going to believe in his name. You know, something else about believing here. We're not just talking about believing the facts about him. When Jesus says he gives this sonship to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he's not merely talking about those who have a cognitive perception of the truth about who he is. Right? We see that in John 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Lord, we know you are someone special. We know you've been sent from God because no one could do the things you're doing if God wasn't with him. And Jesus turns back to Nicodemus and says, that's not enough. That kind of perception of who I am is not sufficient to get you into the kingdom of heaven. We're not just talking about believing the facts about Jesus when we talk about believing in Jesus. In the Greek here, it, it might be better to translate this. It might give us a better understanding of it if we translated it as believing into him. Believing into his name. Now, if you, just, if you take that concept, believing into him, just picture this as a willful movement of the soul that seeks to place itself inside of Jesus. So you have this whole body, this, this just picture a sphere, uh, an orb or something that, that, is, that is the body of truth that is Jesus, right? To believe in Jesus is not to look at that sphere and say, yep, that sphere's true. I see it right there. 
To believe in Jesus is actually to take yourself and plunge yourself into the midst of that sphere. To hide yourself in Him. That's what it means to believe in Him. That you are, you are moving with all of your heart, latching on to Jesus. You are you're holding fast to Him and you're seeking to burrow into Him for all that He is. This is that same picture of the, the, the branch and the vine in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches, right? If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you are my disciples. Or ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That, that picture of abiding in the vine, what should that branch that's on the vine continually be seeking to do? Strengthen its attachment to the vine. What does it mean to abide in the vine? It means that you are constantly seeking to make sure that your attachment to the vine is solid, that it's real, that it's genuine, and that the life of the vine is truly flowing into your life. When we talk about believing in Jesus and receiving Him, we're talking about a compulsion that is awakened within us to find ourselves absolutely hidden inside of Jesus and everything that he has to offer. This is that Colossians 3 language. Our life is hidden with God in Christ, right? Well, it's not simply affirming truths about him, but it is actually believing into him and seeking to find ourselves fully attached to him. To those who receive Jesus like this, he gives to them the right and the authority to be God's children. Do you notice one more thing about this blessing Jesus brought to the world? Notice in verse 12 that the true light of God brings this blessing not in a stingy manner, but with a fullness of willingness to pass it on to whoever will come to him to receive it. The true light is not stingy with this gift. Verse 12 tells us that it's as many as received him who believed in his name. To them he gave the right to become children of God. We're going to see this more fully as we walk through the gospel. But Jesus swears that the one who comes to him, he will never cast out. All right. We're going to see the reality of election. We're going to see the reality that not everyone is going to be saved in Jesus. We're going to see the reality that God has not chosen to save everyone in Jesus Christ. That's John 6. That's John 17. That's John 14, 15, and 16. Not everyone was chosen by God to be saved in Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, 28 to the Pharisees, You don't believe because you are not of my sheep. He does not say you are not of my sheep because you don't believe as if they could become his sheep if they chose to believe. That's not what Jesus says. John 6, No man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a declaration of absolute sovereignty over the salvation of sinners in that statement. When Jesus says, you do not have the ability to come to me unless the Father first comes and draws you to me. And everyone whom the Father draws, Jesus says in that verse, he will raise them up unto eternal salvation on the last day. Now, not everyone will be raised up to eternal salvation. So what does that tell us about the drawing of the Father? It tells us that it's not a universal drawing. However, with that said, we have to acknowledge the fact that the invitation to come to Jesus is as universal as is the light of God in creation. The call and the command of God for sinners to come to his son and find salvation in him goes out into all the world. Acts 17, 31, it's, it's all the sinners of the world. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the, righteous, uh, judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, Jesus Christ. There is, there is the reality of election, and we're going to deal with that as we walk through the gospel, but we can never let that reality mitigate or diminish the universal call of the gospel. 
The moment we do that, we've entered into heresy known as hyper-Calvinism. We'll get, we'll, get, we'll get more into that, I promise. But just for now, notice in verse 12 the broadness of the light's willingness to receive sinners. It's whoever believes in his name, whoever receives him, to them he gives this right to become children of God. Now, so far we're looking at two ways just to reorient our, ourselves, to, to gain attention of where we're at, refocus our minds. We've looked at two ways that the Father has moved to address the darkness of humanity. We've looked, he sent forth John to be a preacher of the light, and he is, we see here he is sending forth the light himself to come into the world to address our darkness. But the nature of our darkness is such that even those two things will not overcome it. The nature of darkness will not be overcome simply by the light manifesting himself among us in a brighter way. The light of our dark, or the, the depth of our darkness will not be overcome even by the greatness of the gift of grace that the light brought with him when he came. Even the light entering into the world is not enough to cause human beings trapped in darkness to be set free from that darkness. Though the true light which enlightens every man came with blessings into the world, our point number three, we're going to end on this, the world still rejected the light. You often hear people speak about God or about what is true or even about Jesus in a way that is basically saying, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? Show me and then I'll believe it. You know, it's amazing that our darkness, the darkness in which we are trapped, cannot even be overcome by seeing what is true for ourselves. Even if we were able to see the mighty miracles of God that he performed in the Old Testament, those miracles would not be enough to overcome our darkness and make us true believers in the light. Right? We saw a picture of that this morning. What happened with Israel? Moses is still up on the mountain receiving the dictates from God, the stipulations of the, co of the covenant that God made with them, and he comes down the mountain, and what does he find them doing? They're worshiping a calf, a golden calf, the very thing that they heard audibly. They themselves heard the voice of God declaring to them, you shall not make a graven image and worship it. And yet, what do we find within 40 days of that? They're doing that very thing. See, seeing the glory of God manifesting on Sinai was not even enough to overcome the darkness that's in the human heart. Seeing the plagues of Egypt with their own eyes, right? Seeing the deliverance that was brought about through the Passover lamb. Seeing the actual pillar of fire and smoke leading them in that wilderness. It was not enough to, to cause them to see the light for what it is and truly believe in him. Even if we ourselves would have been able to see Jesus with our own eyes and to touch him with our own hands and hear his teachings with our own ears and behold his miracles ourselves, even that would not be enough to convince us that Jesus is true. See, even the light coming into the world, when the light comes into the world and manifests himself in a brighter and fuller way to sinners who are trapped in darkness, it doesn't do anything for us other than drive us deeper into our darkness. This is John 3.19, isn't it? Light has come into the world, and sinners, men, loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It wasn't enough for the light merely to come into the world to deliver us from our darkness because the problem was not one of external revelation. The problem was dealing with the heart. It's because we loved darkness that we would not receive that light. John 3.19 says. Verses 10 through 11 of John 1, it tells us that the word, the light, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. 
Now, when the light came, we might expect we might expect the darkness not to receive him or to know him if we were defining that darkness as the darkness that covers the Gentile world, right? The Gentile world was not entrusted with the oracles of God. They, in fact, were alienated from God. They were strangers of the covenant of God's promise, covenants of God's promise. They were lost, having no hope. They were handed over to their sin and without God in the world. We would expect the Gentiles to continue on in their darkness, even when their own eyes saw the light after he came into the world. We would expect that. But what about the Jewish people? Those who were entrusted with God's word, those who were entrusted with all the types and the shadows of the light that were prefiguring the coming of the light into the world, those who were in covenant with Yahweh himself, those who had received so many promises about the coming Messiah through the prophets, prophecies that made known how and when and why the Messiah was going to come. Surely, when the one came whom God had been preparing his people to receive for over 1,500 years, when that one came, surely these people who were in covenant with God would be able to recognize him. They would see him. They would receive him for who he is. Surely, 2,000 years of preparation would be enough. And yet, verse 11 says the reality was just the opposite. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. I bring out that contrast to say we can give an excuse for why the Gentile nations did not receive Jesus as the Messiah. It's not a legitimate excuse, but we can still find the excuse, well, they were strangers to God from the, the whole time. They didn't have the written word of God. That explains their lostness and their darkness. But what about the Jewish people? See, even having all of this revelation was not enough to bring the Jews unto saving faith in the light. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. The Jewish people were Christ's own people. Surely those who were his own people would know and receive him when he came. John 5, 46, he is the one about whom Moses wrote. Right? So these people have had the law of Moses. They've had the books of Moses given to them. And it says that the books of Moses were written all about Jesus. John 8, 56, the word, the light, is the one whose day Abraham saw and rejoiced in. Abraham himself. John 12, 41, the light is the one whom Isaiah saw seated on the throne, high and exalted, and he is the one about whom Isaiah spoke. Jude 5, Jesus is the one who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now surely with all these connections that had been made with the Jewish people in the past, they would have recognized Yahweh when he came. Even after all this, the darkness that was in humanity was not overcome. It was not overcome by sending John. Astoundingly, our darkness was not overcome by sending forth the light himself into the world. Even after all that, we are stuck right where we were in verse 5. Unable to comprehend the light, unwilling to receive him, even among those who were his own people. They were unwilling to receive him. See, the darkness of humanity is so deep and has so permeated our being that even thousands of years of God patiently working with his special people of Israel, revealing himself to them in details no other nation in history was pleased to receive, was privileged to receive. Even after that, that was not enough to cut through the darkness of our condition and sin. Something more was needed than the preaching of John the Baptist, something more was needed even than the light of God personally entering into this world himself. We needed something that reached deeper into our very natures and changed us from the inside out. We needed something that would allow us to see the light for who he is and to receive him and believe upon him. This is what verse 13 describes as the new birth, being born of God. 
If our darkness would truly be, would truly and fully be overcome, you and I must not only heed the preaching of John, we must not only see and believe in and receive the light, but we must be born again by God so that we are able to do that. And that's where we're going to pick up in two weeks with the reality that we must be born of God if we're going to be saved in the light. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it goes forth. It does not return void. Lord, it, it uh, produces the very end for which you purposed it to go out. And uh, Lord, in, in sending the ultimate, uh, the, 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 the ultimate word, sending forth your son, Lord, you sent him to accomplish the ends for which you sent him which is to confer upon those who believe, those who receive him, the blessing of sonship. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we sing this closing hymn, as we rest ourselves in the reality of the light and we bask in his light, Lord, would you help us remember the great blessing that you've given us. Lord, help us remember that you have overcome our darkness. You have translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And in him you treat us as sons and daughters of the king. Lord, help us worship you for all that you've done for us. Fill our hearts with the sense of glory as we sing this closing hymn together. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. From 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. And we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. We are the children of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that you will go forth in the fullness of that reality and walk in the fullness of joy and freedom that belongs to the children of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.